This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Very excited to be sharing this video with you guys. I have been waiting to do this QA with William von Hippel for a while. He is a social psychologist and he is a professor in Australia. And I cannot wait for you guys to see this interview. We talk a lot about just social human behavior and why we may act the way we do and what can actually help us to be happy and to be motivated and to just make our lives the most. Beneficial that it could be for us. So, one thing I do want to say is that、um, Bill von Hippel is big on evolution.、Um, a lot of the, his beliefs and the premise of his research is based on、um, evolution. Now, I know a lot of us are faith based, and so we may not necessarily believe in evolution, but I don't want you guys to discredit this whole QA. I would like you guys to sort of look past the You know, where we come from, sort of thought process, but really just focus on these researches, these studies that show why we may act the way we do, and then how we can sort of change those behaviors or tendencies to then better ourselves. So I hope you guys can listen to this conversation with an open mind and an open heart, and then find good information to then benefit your lives in a positive way. All right, guys, let's get into the show. I am very excited to share this information with you. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy, and today I am very excited to have William von Hippel with me. And、uh, I am so excited to share this QA with you guys. I have been waiting for a long time to talk with him, and、um, I will just have him introduce himself for those of you that don't know him. So, hi, Bill.、Uh, how's、hi. it going? Yeah, it's all very good. Thanks. Okay, so if you could just introduce yourself,、uh, you know, some of your teachings, your book, if you could just talk a little bit about yourself to the followers that don't know you. Hi,、um, my name is Bill von Hippel, and I'm a social psychologist. I'm originally from Anchorage, Alaska, but now I live in Australia, where I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland.、Uh, I'm very interested in understanding human nature 
And in social psychology, we try to build a picture of the way we are now. But in order to help me understand that picture and to kind of broaden it out and, and connect the dots, I've also become very interested in looking at our evolutionary history and how is it that we've changed over the last six million years and how does that time span help us understand the way we are today? Right. And I mean, and that makes so much sense. Um, so can you tell us a little about, um, you know, like I've seen so many videos about you and uh, it's been uh, really like amazing to listen to all your studies and education. Uh, so in terms of the importance of storytelling and how community is so important to human evolution and how that even affects, um, I guess, modern day social media, if you can sort of talk through the importance of storytelling. Sure. So uh, humans are unique on this planet compared to all the other animals in the sense that not only are we really good at learning, but we're also good at retaining that knowledge and passing it on. So every other animal is in a situation where they basically have to start the world fresh as if there was never any history to their species before them, at least insofar as what they can learn, not their instincts. And so, for example, chimp mothers will teach their babies how to crack a nut, but every generation they crack nuts the exact same way because nobody can say, well, hold on, let's see if we can improve this uh, strategy of nut cracking. Humans, in contrast, have what we call cumulative culture, which allows us to every generation ratchet what the new generation knows on top of what the old generation had before it. And the way this is achieved is via our incredible storytelling abilities. And so I can go off and have an experience that you're not even there. I can come back and I can tell you about it. And this is an incredibly valuable thing to do because you can now learn from all the trials and tribulations that I experienced without having to go through any of the risks and dangers yourself. So imagine I'm off hunting, I'm attacked by a lion, I somehow survive it, and I come home and tell you this tale. Well, that's super useful to you. You've gained this information at no cost to yourself, even though it costs me a great deal to learn it on my own. And so what human beings can do via our incredible um, communication abilities is consolidate all that information, tell this narrative of exactly how it came about. As a consequence, we've evolved to become very interested in telling stories because that way we can share with our group what we've learned and be more valuable to our group. And we've evolved a great deal of interest in, in listening to stories because they're so valuable to our ancestors. And that's why every generation, we learn from what the generation before us knew, and now we can even add on top of that. So in, in contrast to every other animal, if you look around our world, we've developed so many amazing things. You, know, you and I are talking to each other halfway around the world on a device that neither of us understands. But somebody out there over a very long period of time put all the pieces together that enabled this super complicated process to come together. Now, social media has become a very important form of storytelling. Storytelling, of course, originally began many thousands of years ago, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years ago. We're not sure. But it began as a process of just oral traditions and telling stories around the fire and remembering them. The, uh, the process now moves incredibly fast because I can put my story up on the web and then the whole world can see it. And so social media, part of the reason it's so attractive to us is it allows us to tell our stories to everybody all at once and to encounter a lot of other stories at the same time. And so we're naturally drawn to it because it's this very compelling medium that enables something that we've evolved to have a strong desire to, be, to do. It's really interesting because if we're talking in terms of evolution, then I would think that people that have greater storytelling um, abilities will have more, I guess, power within that community. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so how do, how does that work, right? So um, if everyone wants to story tell so that they will have more validity and then others want to listen, how how do you think we as a society sort of parse through that? And then I know that also sort of, you know, ducktails into gossiping so or yeah. exaggerating. So if you can sort of talk through that. Yeah, yeah, it's a complicated process. So the first part of it is we're all compelled to tell our stories because not only do we want to learn from others, but we want to make our group value us. Our ancestors who weren't valuable to the group were left alone. They were tossed, and that was a virtual death sentence. So we're super interested that our group should value us. And what that means is not only do we want to tell stories, but they're highly curated stories. We don't just take a selfie on a vacation and put it up without even looking at it. We take, you know, 12 selfies till we get it just right, till we look the best we possibly can. And then we put that story up. And in fact, that's one of the negative sides of social media because it really looks like everyone's life is better than your own because you forget that their stories are so heavily curated just like your own are. But setting that issue aside, so we, we have this strong desire to both listen to and tell stories, but because often other people's stories are really only telling us something that we kind of already know, sometimes we're far more compelled to tell our own stories than we are to listen to others. And I'm sure you've been in the situation before where you're at a cocktail party or whatever, and someone's telling you a story, and really all you do in your mind is waiting until they shut up so you can tell your response or your version of the same thing. You know, we've all had that experience. But of course, the reality is it's just as important to listen to these things as it is to tell them. Now, the gossip side is a super interesting part of this process because, of course, what gossip is is storytelling, only it's a very particular kind of storytelling. It's a kind of storytelling where we often focus on the negative things that people do. Uh, We often tell the sort of salacious tidbits. And the reason for that is that gossip is a great way for our ancestors to manage reputations. If I do something mean to you and we're in private and nobody knows, well, how can you get me back, especially if I'm stronger than you are or more powerful in our group? But you can get me back if you can then plant the seed in other people's minds that I'm not really a nice guy. And you can gossip about me and tell the mean thing that I did. And then it circulates among the group and suddenly I'm no longer welcome anymore. And so it's this great leveler where somebody who would otherwise be in a relatively powerless position can now enact retribution, so to speak, for the mean things that other people do to them. And, if, okay. and of course, we come to realize this over time. And so it guides people's behavior. They're very careful about what they do because they don't want to be gossiped about. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So if we were to take this into in terms of sort of group behavior, um, I, I can see how gossip and storytelling and then just, you know, believing in the same core values within this group. So say, for example, our our community is very meat-based, so we're carnivore, and obviously it's very con- uh, contrasting to vegans, right? Because instinctually we will become very defensive if we hear something that's counter to what we believe. So how do we go about sharing information and misinformation when other people believe something differently and not having them their initial instincts to become defensive come into play? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, part of it, it comes back to something you asked about earlier, which is that uh, good storytelling is the key. And whoever can tell the narrative that captures people's minds and captures their attention, that person will win, at least over the short term, even if they're wrong. And so you can take a look, for example, in the early 1990s, um, the United States government changed the food um, recommendations and they created that food pyramid. And at the bottom of that pyramid, the base of it was basically grains, cereals. And, And they told people the way to avoid becoming obese is to eat lots of cereals and very little meat. Well, 
that was a great narrative. Uh, the pyramid was easy to understand. The obesity crisis in America was just starting to pick up steam, and they were trying to nip it in the bud before it took off. Well, that narrative won, so to speak, for about 20 years. And the, the consequence was the obesity epidemic got way worse, right? So instead of solving the problem, it, it went in the wrong direction. At the same time, it almost I think that pyramid went up in 1992. That was the exact same year that one of my heroes, Steve Simpson, published his first paper showing the importance of protein in diets and showing that carbohydrates are actually not something that makes you feel full. And he did that work in, I think the first study was crickets, but it might have been locusts. At any rate, it was some small bug, and it was virtually ignored, right? And so he, the, the narrative has massively shifted. You know, wherever you go in the grocery stores now, you can see the importance of protein and people know and care about it a lot. But it took uh, literally an entire generation for, the, for people to change the story and to come to realize that what they were being fed was misinformation, not out of any malevolence. You know, everybody who was doing this work thought that they were providing the best judgment they could. But nonetheless, it, these narratives can carry a, a lot of weight for a very long time. Uh, part of the argument is that we literally evolved our logical processing abilities, not in order to find the truth, but in order to persuade people of the truth as we see it and so that we could be more socially effective. Right. And so that's what we all tend to do, which then gets to the second side. We tend to feel very defensive when somebody attacks our worldview. And that's, it, it's an unfortunate holdover. It's super important to try really hard to be as open-minded as you possibly can because all of us are going to be wrong constantly in our lives, right? Science is changing and it's improving and we're discovering the things that we thought were true or not true. And so it's super important to say, all right, well, maybe that's correct. Let me think about the validity of your argument. And then if it seems to fall on its own basis, then you ignore it. But if it seems like there may be something there to try to be open-minded to it, difficult as that can be. So what I'm hearing from you is basically the person hearing or listening to this new information has to proactively tell them themselves to, hey, maybe I should wonder why I feel self-defensive about this instead of just, you know, throwing this idea that is unknown or um, against what I normally perceive um, to then, you know, see if there's validity. So it's a really, it's really dependent on the person to be self, I guess, introspective about that. Yeah. Yeah, you have to self-reflect, and it's not easy. And in my mind, I, when I find myself em reacting emotionally to information somebody's told me, I say, well, why am I getting emotional? You know, if you told me the earth is flat, I would say, ha, I know you're wrong, and it's not, I'm not fussed by it, right? It doesn't upset me. But if you tell me something that attacks a core belief of mine, even though the world being round is a core belief, it's not one I doubt at all. It's one I'm so assured in, I don't worry about it. But if you attack a core belief that maybe I'm a tiny bit unsure about, that's where I tend to get a little bit more upset. Or maybe it's a, a core belief that's more self-defining. I regard my, that, I'm not, I might be totally sure about it, but I regard it as important to who I am. Again, that's when I tend to get upset. And so you, you want to stop and try to ask yourself, why am I reacting emotionally to information? And then, is there any value in it? No, dismiss. Yes, maybe try to think about it. That makes a lot of sense. I also think, um, so as a nutritional therapy practitioner, a lot of my clients, we, I try to figure out how they function and what motivates them as individuals. And so, you know, some people work better with, I'll throw them a lot of evidence research that kind of goes against what they believe, but some people don't care about that information. And yeah. so one thing I've learned over time that has also been helpful is to kind of figure out that person's why or what emotionally will move them to then also have them maybe be more open to me, right? Because you have to also build trust and uh, have them be able to then be more, I guess, if if you want to say persuaded, but 
you know, yeah. have well, my, my brilliant colleague, Matthew Hornsey, has done a lot of wonderful work on trying to persuade people of scientific truths. And okay. he's found that just giving them more evidence doesn't tend to work. But yes. what does tend to work is saying, well, what's the underlying basis for your resistance to this problem? And then even if that resistance has nothing to do with the topic at hand, if you focus on the resistance, then suddenly they can become more open to the scientific information. He calls this the sort of Tai Chi of persuasion, you know, using your own force against you so that yeah. you then come to see that, well, maybe this scientific evidence has some validity. Well, that's, yeah, that's pretty powerful. Um, so let's talk a little bit about lying. I saw uh, one talk where you talk about your son's lunchbox. If, if you can talk a little about a bit about, you know, sort of why we lie. I know it kind of goes back to gossiping as well, but if you just sure. talk a bit about that. Sure. So human beings are unique on this planet in our ability to understand the contents of other people's minds. It's a, when we're first born, we can't do it. And so we just think that whatever's in our head is the same thing in everyone's head. And that's part of the reason that when you listen to small children, their narratives can be so hard to follow because they tell you things. They'll say, well, then she said that to him. And, and you're like, well, who's she and who's him? You haven't given me any background here because they don't realize that you don't have all the contents in your mind that are the same as the contents in their mind. But then by around age, four years old, most humans get to the point where they go, oh, the contents of my mind differ from yours. You might have different preferences than I have. You know different information than I know. And that's the point around three or four where people start to lie because they start to realize, wow, if you know different things than I know, I can manipulate the contents of your mind in order to advantage myself. And it's it's actually almost an IQ test. It's a good thing when kids start to go through this because it shows that they they got it. Of course, we try to discourage lying, but at the same time, it's nice to see that they the penny has dropped and they figured that out. Right. Um, the example that you're asking about in my own case of my son was we were he was four years old and he was playing at this park and this other little kid came and joined him. And you know, kids do that all the time. They make these sort of instantaneous friendships and they're noodling around in the park and the and I'm standing nearby. And the new kid says to my son, I've got a Spider-Man lunchbox. Now, my obviously, he's that's a good thing, whatever that might be, right? Or he wouldn't announce it. But my son didn't know who Spider-Man was. And so almost without missing a beat, he said, well, I've got a grass man and a leaf man lunchbox. And so, you know, they don't even exist, but he, tried to, he doesn't know what a Spider-Man is. So he's trying to um, match it a lot and, and have something similar, but only, you know, one better. He's got both. And so the little guy looked at me like, does your son really have these things? And I couldn't, of course, let my own son down. So I was like, yeah, he does. And so in this sense, a, a very silly, trivial lie, but a nice example of how, you know, you're, he's very aware of his social position. He's very aware that if this kid has something that he doesn't, that that would put him a little bit down in the hierarchy. And the only way that he could fix the problem in this case was a blatant lie about two superheroes that don't even exist just because it sounded good to him. It sounded like a Spider-Man, I suppose. Right. And so... Uh... I know in the, I think the video clip I saw, you conceded with him that, uh, you know, he did have those lunch boxes. So how did you handle that afterwards? Did you tell your son, hey, lying's not the best? I mean, how did you handle that? Well, the, the, you have to just pick your battles, right? And so in this particular case, I thought, well, it's, it's fundamentally human nature to lie in order to maintain our position in social hierarchy, especially on a trivial basis like that. And so I could have told him you shouldn't do that, but literally it would be like you know, it would bounce off him. It would have no impact because he's going to do that again. We all do. We, we pretend about ourselves. We, we puff ourselves up a little bit, uh, particularly in new situations with new people when we're a little bit worried about how we stand. Mm -hmm. And so rather than worrying about that one, 
I waited. To, I now know, okay, good. He knows how to lie and he knows how to use it. Now let's wait till a time comes where he's doing it for a malevolent reason, not just to protect himself, but to put himself above others. And then I said, well, you know, that's not such a good thing. Here's why you shouldn't do it. Here are the long-term costs, etc." Wow, that's interesting. Okay, Th- that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know that with my son, so my son, my oldest is five. And so sometimes if I see him like exaggerate or lie, I think I do call him out. But I realize now maybe I should do it when it's more, you know, like you said, if it's more, um, you know, just more beneficial for him and not necessarily just to protect himself. It's, yeah. it's an interesting spin on uh, parenting. Um, <laughs> well, it is. But let me just have one really quick sure, thing. Sure. And that is that exaggeration is always a little bit different than lying. We okay. tend to look at it like lying. But it, when people exaggerate, they're typically just trying to make sure that you share their emotional experience. Oh, and right, so right, right. I, I, I try to overlook that as much as possible, because really all they want to do when they tell you when they make the fish bigger than it really was, is, is have they were excited and impressed and they want you to be excited and impressed too. And so those typical things you just let wash so i have a family member that sort of exaggerates a light a lot and i and after watching that it made a lot more sense to me so i used to think that this person was oh man she she is such a liar and i really really do not like that um (laughs) that you know core personality trait of hers but now as i know her history and her life um past now I understand it's really just for her to be empathized with, right? In the way that she wanted. And so if you can sort of talk more about that exaggeration, I think sure. it's um, amazing. Sure, sure. So um, once we left the rain, so six million years ago or so, we left the rainforest. And we moved to the savannah because actually the rainforest dried out and left us behind on the east side of the Rift Valley in Africa. And so once we moved to the savannah, we eventually figured out the best way to work together was to bond as a group. Now, the um, once you start working together as a tightly cooperative group, then and especially once you start getting smarter. So now we're around two to three million years ago. One of the things that we started to learn was that we wanted to be aware of the contents of each other's minds. Um, and that serves two purposes. One, as an individual, if I know what you're thinking, then I can predict what you're going to do and I can situate myself to benefit from it the most. But also, if I let you know what I'm thinking, then the same thing holds, that my influence, I might actually be able to influence your goals, and maybe you'll start to do the things that would benefit me, and so I'll be a success in life if I can just persuade you of the validity of my thought process. And that's, as a consequence of these processes, over the last few million years, we've become the only species on this planet who's constantly interested in sharing the contents of our minds with each other. But we don't just want to know what each other knows. We want to also know what each other feels. And we want to share those feelings. A group that all agrees that this is an opportunity and that's an enemy is a group that's going to be very effective. Whereas a group that can't come to this emotional agreement is very ineffective. So we've evolved a strong desire to share the contents of our mind and to share our emotions. The end result is that if I tell you about something I did and I'm really outraged, so let's say you know, my, my boss is, was rude to me today. I tell you what she said and you go, oh, ha ha, you deserved it. Well, I'm really upset now because you're not sharing the earlier upset I already experienced. Yes. So because I've evolved to want to be on the same page as you are emotionally. So rather than taking that risk and thinking, well, maybe you won't be as outraged as I am. I literally exaggerate the story. I make it my boss that much meaner. And then when I tell you this tale, well, there's no way you're going to disagree with me. You go like, oh my God, that's terrible. And I go, yes, that's terrible. And you and I feel this kind of a bond. So when people exaggerate to a to us, especially if they exaggerate all the time, it feels like they're a liar, but all they're really trying to do is share this emotional bond with you and try to get you to ensure that you'll feel the same way that they do about something. And once you realize that, you can be a lot more forgiving about people yes. whose stories are always exaggerated. Yes, 
that that's exactly how I felt after watching that uh, video clip of yours. I think understanding the um, the big difference between lying and exaggeration really, like you said, allows you to have more empathy and more, I guess, grace for people that do tend to exaggerate. Because if you know their past, there's probably a reason why they want to exaggerate more to make sure that they are included, right? So it, may, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. There was a clip I saw that talks about how the power of the human mind, right? So the human mind is so powerful where we, I guess, have a blind spot in our eye. And so, um, but our brains are so powerful, we're able to sort of kind of put everything together to not show that blind spot as we like perceive the world. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and why, you know, about the brain and all, all that stuff? Yeah. So um, if you think about the way our senses work, they feel like they're video recorders, just showing us the world that's out there. But if you pause and reflect on it, you've got this two-dimensional surface on your retina, for example, on your eye. Mm -hmm. And that two-dimensional surface has to translate a three-dimensional world. Well, there's a ton of information lost when you go from 3D to 2D, when you just got this flat projection screen, and you have to put that information back in. So we use all sorts of information about color and constancy and size and movement, relative movement, all sorts of things like that in order to actually put together a 3D world. And we don't realize that our brain is constructing that 3D world off a 2D image using a lot of rules that we've learned when we're infants and we're, we're adapting to our own eyeballs and our own visual capabilities. And our brain is responding to that. Our brain is sort of this predictive device. And so if we, as an infant, if we reach out for something that we think is, is small and close and it turns out to be distant and far, well, now our brain goes, oh, I've made a prediction error. I need to adjust how I understand the world and what cues told me that that was really bigger and farther away and not smaller and closer. Because literally, a big thing far away and a small thing close to you will have the exact same image on your retina. You just have to use other cues to tell you that. So it turns out that our, our mind is not, our, our senses are not like video recorders at all. They're this very interactive process with our brain going through all sorts of construction in order to figure out what's really there. And then it literally fills in the gaps. So your blind spot is one example where the, literally there's a blank spot in both of your eyes where you see nothing at all. It's just black space because that's where the nerve leaves your eyeball. But your brain fills in that black space with whatever else it knows ought to be there, and it does it so seamlessly, you literally can't see it. There's little experiments you can do to test this. If you close one eye and you move your thumb around until you find your blind spot, literally the end of your thumb will then disappear in a moment because it's, you've pushed it into the spot where you can't see. Now, we do the same thing with hearing as well. I'm sure you've had this experience many times before where somebody says something and you go, what? And then as soon as you say it, you go, oh, I wish I didn't say what. I got it. And now yes. i got to wait for them to yap and tell me the whole thing again. <laughs> but, it, but in fact, you didn't get it. They said it the first time. You didn't process some of the words. You automatically say what. But then after all the sentence is finished, your mind says, oh, that missing word must have been turkey because we we're talking about Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. And it literally plays it back to you as if it was there. And so you think, oh, I jumped the gun and I said what even though I heard it. Well, you didn't jump the gun. You said what because you didn't hear it, but now your mind has fixed it and replayed it for you. And it's amazing how effective we are. It's, we're so effective that we don't even know what's happening. And our brain is filling in the picture all the time. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. 
We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Wow, that's really fascinating. So if part of what we view of the world is sort of skewed by what our brain processes and what we've sort of raised, uh, we've been raised to view of the world, then how much do we really know of what is reality, right? So... Yeah, I mean, that's a great question since Descartes, at least. And, and, and so we don't know, of course. But one thing that we can say is that we, there's lots of good experiments that show that how you want the world to be biased is how you see it. And so the, you know, the sort of classic thing where it seems like the referee is always cheating for the other team, the, it, it does actually look that way. If you get people who are incentivized to tell you what accurately happened. They don't win money if their team wins. They win money if they get it right. They nonetheless see more violations against their team and more unfair calls against their team than they do against the other team. That's just human nature. Again, it goes back to this idea that we evolved in order to be a good group member, in order to be persuasive about what we already believe to be the case, to convince others, not so much to find the truth in the world. Because if I were this ancient truth seeker, you know, eventually my group thinks X and I think it's probably Y. They're going to go, we're sick of you. Out you go. You know, we, we were tired of hearing that it's not X. But if, I'm a, if I've evolved to go along with my group and see the world the way they do, then I'm going to get all the valuable things that a group can give. People will be more likely to mate with me. They'll share their food with me, all those kinds of things. Right. From everything that we've been talking about um, in terms of, you know, we have a sort of altered view of the world based on what our brain has perceived in, you know, us growing up. Um, as well as sort of the storytelling that we've experienced. All of those things are genetics, are just life experiences. So knowing all of this information, what, what do you think really helps to make people be motivated? And then also, you know, when we try to, when we identify that certain habits aren't the best and we want to change that, like what are the best ways to have people change their habits and have them stick for the long term? Yeah, so those are great questions. Um, m- motivation comes from a lot of different places. And, and one of our most important motivations is literally to fit in and be liked. It seems trivial, but it's not. Our, going back to what I was saying before, our ancestors who weren't liked aren't our ancestors because they got tossed out and they never had babies. And so a super fundamental human mo- motivation is to be liked by others. And that shapes and guides everything that we do. We tend to think of our interests as being intrinsic. Oh, I love tennis. Um, I love whatever. And, and we think that comes from inside us and the world will accept us as we are. But in reality, what we've evolved to do is find where we're, what our unique set of gifts are. If I'm a better tennis player than a basketball player, it doesn't matter that you're still a better tennis player than I am. It, it means that compared to my, my relative strengths are toward tennis, and I'm going to enjoy tennis more than I'm going to enjoy basketball. And so we, we tend to build our interests around our strengths because that's the way that people respond to us the most positively. Now, what that also means is that there often comes times in our lives where we decide we need to make a change. Um, I'm not fit enough. I'm not studious enough. I'm not whatever enough. And there, what the research evidence suggests is that what we're doing really is fighting against a lifetime of of, of habits that we've already developed that we no longer think suit us. And the best way to solve that problem is to develop new habits. And bizarrely, what that means is turning over control of our behavior to the environment. I know that sounds really weird, but 
Peter Goldwitzer has done this long line of research showing that when you develop what are called implementation intentions, you say, at 6 p.m. I'm going to do X, or at uh, after dinner I'm going to do Y. In other words, you're, you're ceding control of your own behavior to an environmental cue. At 6, um, something's going to happen. Oh, after right. dinner, something's going to happen. When you do that, you're far more likely to execute the behavior than when you leave it to your personal judgment. Well, I'll work out when I feel like working out, because you just might not ever feel like it. But habits are actually ingrained processes where when an environmental cue happens, we respond accordingly. And yes. so to create new habits, we decide on a new environmental cue and we cede our, our control of our behavior over to that. And the data show it works for everybody. It's the, the single most effective way to start a new program of anything is to just choose a time and place and say at that time and place, X is gonna happen. It doesn't guarantee it, but it's your best bet at getting of going down that road. And then of course, if you can stick with it over time, it becomes a habit and it just rolls off automatically. But I noticed that in certain habits, when let's say stress comes or you know we're more in the emotional state, a lot of us tend to go back to our old habits. So why, yeah. why, why is that? Well, the, the problem is that you don't actually unlearn old habits. You just write new ones over the top. And those old ones can be really ingrained. And you can see that in a variety of ways. Often when, when people... If they have brain damage or um, late in life dementia or something like that, the newest memories are lost and the old ones from their childhood are retained. And that seems bizarre because it seems, well, it's hard to remember our childhood and it's easy to remember yesterday. But that old childhood stuff is really written down and, you know, etched into your brain quite deeply and the new stuff not so much. So stress and all those things can change it. And then the key thing is, again, to be very aware of environmental control of your behavior and to try to reinstantiate it. So just for example, imagine that I have a bad habit of snacking too much on frosted flakes. You know, I know they're not healthy and I know I like them and I shouldn't. Well, I would say never eat them out of the box because then you're in self-control of exactly how many to eat. I would say decide on how much you're going to eat, pour it into a bowl, and then go eat that. So now you've, again, seed control to the environment. I will eat this amount of them rather than leaving control inside yourself. I will eat until I decide it's time to stop eating. I, I know that I uh, have read studies where um, people that were in the hospital, they uh, it, the people that made this whole plan and, you know, they had all taking into all these environmental cues, if they were to write down sort of imagining how they would get better outside of the hospital, well, this um, research showed that the people that wrote down like step by step where they already sort of imagined it in their brains, they were far quicker in recovery than people that just said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to recover. And so, exactly. yeah. So it's laying out an action plan of exactly that sort. Again, it sounds weird, but they're seeding control of the environment. When this happens, I'm going to do this, that sort of thing. Yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. Um, I know that you also say that um, motivation, so a lot of times we are motivated more for bad than good. Um, I, I have come with all my clients and just experiences that I do believe people don't really change unless there's a sort of abject misery or divine inspiration. But why, yeah. why would you say that um, it's really the bad that uh, gets people to change? And if you can give us an example. Sure. So again, this goes back to revolutionary history. If I go out today and I have a hunt and I come home with tonight's dinner, I have a successful kill. That's a great thing. I was going to be hungry and now I'm well fed. But if I go out on a hunt and I get my arm bit off or something like that, that's a terrible thing. And now rather than just making me a little happier for one day, it could be the end of me altogether. And so we've evolved 
for bad to be stronger than good. And my colleague Roy Baumeister is probably the best known person who's shown this in lots of different ways, that basically we overemphasize the negative because it, one bad thing is, can be so much worse than one good thing is good. You know, no matter how good of a hunt it was, I'm not gonna feed myself for more than a day or two. But a bad hunt could be the end of me for all of eternity, right? right. And so we're very focused on bad things. The bad things highly motivate us to avoid them, to address them and to deal with them. Whereas good things, we just have this automatic tendency to roll along. And marketers, for example, or political consultants, all those guys know that. And whenever you get a, a letter, if you're a member of any political group and they're trying to fundraise, they never tell you, things are going great, we're winning, donate money. They won't get a cent if they do that. They say, things are terrible, the other side is winning, we need your money. And then people are motivated. The downside of this, of course, is that constantly people are motivated to tell us that the world is bad because they're trying to get us to change our behavior. And you can end up with this view of the world that's very negative when in fact the world is going great. You know, on any single dimension, the world is a much better place today than it was 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 or 1,000 years ago. And uh, Steve Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, shows that across a thousand different domains. It, the evidence is super clear, but most people don't know it because society is constantly bombarding them with the world is bad in this way, we need to fix it, just because people know intrinsically that's the way to motivate change in behavior. That's interesting you say that because, I mean, I myself think the world is much more violent. I mean, we see all these shootings at schools, right? And so, I mean, how would you explain that? So, I mean, I don't think there were all these shootings like decades ago, right? And it was way these... worse decades ago. There's oh. way more killings decades. So what we don't realize, mass shootings are relatively rare, thank God. And if you actually look at how many Americans die, for example, in mass shootings, the number is very low and it's always been very low, even on a really bad year where there's been a couple of really bad mass shootings. What we forget about is every single day somebody gets shot in America over a conflict, over an accident or whatever. And there's so many of those that literally, you, if you look at the data, you can't even see the mass shootings in the, in the background noise that exists. But the good news is violence in American cities has gone way down. They're way safer than they used to be. So in the 1980s when I was in, uh, I went to college in Connecticut, and we, we loved to go into New York City, but it's this incredibly dangerous place that we worried about going to and walking around at night because everybody I knew had been mugged. Now you go to New York City, you wander around at night, you hardly give it any thought. And the same has happened in American cities everywhere. Now, what you say is true. There are mass shootings, and, and in Sometimes those mass shootings actually are going up in any one given year. But the actual reality is that, you know, let's take a really bad year and there's and 50 to 100 people are killed in a mass shooting. That's nothing compared to the many thousands of people who are killed in all these other little tiny everyday incidents. And those have come way down all over the world. Um, America is a good example, but everywhere, almost everywhere, there's a couple really bad spots. Almost everywhere, the world's become much safer on those dimensions. Well, that's really interesting. And so if we tend to, as humans, focus on the bad, so, you know, it, not thinking of it like holistically, but just thinking of it from a day-to-day -day life, if we always focus on the bad, because we are sort of kind of wired to be that way, how do we shift our mindsets to then try to focus more on the positives and not just let the positives bypass us? Well, it's not easy. And the the main thing, and, and I think this is Steve Pinker's point in his book, is that we just need to be aware of it. And so the 
here's a good example. Um, a little in eighteen hundred in eighteen hundreds, ninety percent of the world was in abject poverty, and ninety percent of the world was illiterate. Now. 90% of the world is well-fed, only 10% are in abject poverty, and 90% of the world can read. And so just think about how different the world is today than it was 100 and some years ago. The, in, in 1900, if you had a baby, your chance as a mother of dying was, you know, there, there was a decent chance you would die in that delivery. I can't remember exactly, but a few percentage points. Worse yet, there was a 25% chance that your child would die before the age of five. You know, that means everybody knew people who had lost children. But nowadays, it's, thank God, super rare that somebody loses their child before the age of five. And, and we, know, we know people where it's happened, but it's, we hardly know anybody like that, rather than having most families have these kinds of experiences. And, and lots of families having experiences where mothers' lives were lost in childbirth. So on every single domain, the world's become better, and we can... We can be aware of that when we stop and reflect on it, but it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget just how, how many people died in, in this before modern medicines, how many people died in so many different kinds of ways, and wars and conflicts as well. They've gone way down. You know, we think of terrorism as this uniquely modern problem, but in fact, terrorism now, there's, the, there's fewer people dying of terrorism now than they were in the 70s and 80s. We just don't, the, the, the cause of terrorism was different in those days, and so we paid less attention to it. I think in terms of our health, right? So I, I agree with you. I think over time, uh, you know, with modern medicine and sanitation, our lives increasingly got better or just more comfortable. But I mean, based off the foods we eat now, I mean, people, we have metabolic diseases and heart attacks that were almost non-existent just 100 years ago. And if you were to talk in evolutionary terms, that's really like a blip in sp a time. And so we are sicker almost in perspective um, in terms of all these metabolic diseases than before. And so I don't think this is just a, oh, we're just focusing on the bad in actuality, everyone's healthier. I mean, well, what is your take on that? No, that's a great point. And so the one way that the world has gotten worse is, is via these non-communicable diseases, so non-contagious diseases. And, and it's the scourge of the rich world, right? In, mm -hmm. in the poor world, there's not diabetes, there's not well, there is, but not at the levels that not there are much, where yes. people can be overfed. And so I mentioned earlier Steve Simpson, whose work started in the early 90s about protein, and he's, he's now head up an institute where that's exactly the goal. How do we address these non-communicable diseases, these lifestyle diseases? And it is the case that they're way worse than they are now, and in some subsections of the population, life expectancy has actually gone down a little yes. bit as a consequence of these things. So... Yes, the, um, overall the world is way safer. So for example, uh, you had a greater chance of dying around 1900 from food poisoning than you had way greater chance of dying from food poisoning in 1900 than you had dying of murder in the most dangerous cities in America during the crack epidemic. So there's lots of causes of disease that have completely disappeared, but these non-communicable ones, these lifestyle ones have gotten a lot worse. And, and the unfortunate truth about that is they're also, they tend to be particularly focused on poorer people in wealthier countries. Yeah. So the wealthier countries have, everyone has plenty to eat, but if you're a poor person in a wealthier country, you're eating lower quality foods. And those right. lower quality foods are far more likely to lead to all the kinds of health problems that we're discussing. And so it's an unfortunate truth that we are at a unique point in history where this is a particular problem. I think that we're 
very close to solving it, by which I mean the next 20 or so years, as we become much better at understanding the effects of nutrition and, and being able to fix those effects uh, technologically. But, uh, you know, because of the green revolution and all that had some great benefits, but there's lots of consequences with endocrine disruptors and pesticides and all sorts of things like that. So there's lots of complications, but I don't think we're that far away from sorting out most of them, at least in the context of those who can afford it. And then the, I, as these things usually go, over time it becomes cheaper and cheaper and it becomes something that's accessible to everybody. I also believe that I'm um, ho hoping that uh, the simple you know, truth can be, let's just go back to simple eating and heal ourselves with just the foods that we used to eat, maybe just eat like single items, right? And uh, not have to eat like a plethora of processed foods that are probably not the best for our health instead of just using a solution that I'm sure that someone will create eventually, right? But um, going back to the basics of um, just basic foods, basic real foods. Yeah, we didn't evolve to eat a food that has 47 foods in it. You know, we evolved yes. to eat something. And so our, our psychologically, we respond to them often in negative ways. And I'm sure we do physiologically as well. I don't know as much about the biology as I know about the psychology. But sure. there's, no, there's no question that when we start eating all sorts of things that we didn't evolve to eat, that were potentially, that our body's not prepared to handle them right. Now, we know that things can change over time. So agriculture is about 10 to 12,000 years old, and we can see all sorts of evolutionary markers in our blood and elsewhere in our body of adapting to agriculture. So we, we know that we can change the way we process foods as a consequence of the foods that are available to us. But of course, why not find those foods that match us the best possible way and then focus on eating those? Turning to diet right now, so what, what from all your studies, um, uh, what what do you think is the evolutionary diet that we sort of came from? So that's a great question. Now, there's lots of argument about it, but I'm more than happy to, to give you my perspective on the problem. Okay. The, the data now show that we've controlled fire for at least a million years, probably longer. And so lots of people argue that we should be eating raw foods. And humans did not evolve eating raw foods, at least not our species. You know, our species is only a few hundred thousand years old. Sure. And if we've been controlling fire for over a million years, that's back to Homo erectus. So raw foods can be a great thing, um, largely because... The, it's actually very difficult for us to digest them. It takes a lot of energy, and so you, you pull fuller, fewer calories out of them. So if your goal is to not gain weight, then raw foods make a lot of sense. But if your goal is to extract as many calories and nutrients as you can from your food, then by and large what that means is cooked foods. That's what we evolved to do. That's why we have such a small gut and such a large brain. All of our primate cousins have very big guts, and very small brains. And so they, have, they can't cook their food. And so they have to put all this energy into digestion and all that energy can only support a tiny little you know, brain, which is a very expensive organ. We're in the opposite situation. So point one is cooked foods, although raw foods are great if you're trying to make it harder on your body to extract calories and nutrients. The, um, the second thing I would say is that there's, every, there's not a hunter-gatherer on the planet who's a vegetarian. Um, every single every single time hunters return with meat, the whole group celebrates. It's a big deal for everybody. Everybody loves it, and they love the taste of it. So we evolved in order to eat meat whenever we could because it's a super dense form of calories and nutrients. But of course, now that we don't have there's no food stress in our world anymore. Now lots of people can choose how they want to be. And so, for example, my own daughter has decided that she wants to be a vegetarian. And that happens a lot in today's world. It's a 
a perfectly reasonable choice that a person might make. But it's not what we evolved to do. What we evolved to do is eat cooked food and eat meat um, as much of a percentage of our diet as we could get our hands on. Now, if you overdo protein, it's hard on your kidneys. And our ancestors never could overdo protein because hunting is never that good, right? You're, you're going to come home empty-handed a lot. In today's world, uh, lots of people choose not to eat meat, either for reasons of the um, ecology of the planet, for moral reasons, because they don't like the flavor, uh, that, but that never happened in our past. And so we do know that the, the diet that, that's natural for humans, that humans have lived on for hundreds of thousands of years, is a diet where it's, we eat some roots that have been dug up. Whenever berries and fruits are in season, we eat as many of those as we possibly could. So we know that our hunter-gatherer ancestors are nomadic. And literally, when berries are in season, they go there and they just camp out at the berry bush and they eat them all day long. And so we evolved to eat. We got a good variety in our diet, but it was over time. In any one day, it might be only meat. It might be only berries. It might be only whatever. And then across time, they had a highly varied diet that worked out really well. But that diet was as much meat-based as it was possible for them to achieve. Well, I know that you say that um, when, de depending on the, you know, the kind of variety we eat, we can actually gain more weight. And so there's satiety with just eating, eating a, like one, you know, like just eating meat. Can you talk a little bit about that too? Sure. So psychologically, our ancestors were in a situation where they didn't have this big variety at the dinner table. You know, we can, no matter where we live in today's world, if we have the cash, we could get a bazillion different kinds of ripe fruits and vegetables and meats and carbohydrates, whatever we want. That's very novel. It didn't even exist 100 years ago, much less 1,000 years ago. And so what our ancestors did, particularly if you go back before 10,000 years when we were all hunter-gatherers, is they would have killed an animal, and that was typically the male job, killing large animals, and women typically were digging up some kind of local roots or bringing in some kind of berries. So there's, like dinner had one or two things on the table, so to speak. And as a consequence, we've, what appears to be the case is that we've evolved in order to start to feel full from a particular food. We don't want to eat that food anymore because largely what our system is telling us is, okay, you can gain no more nutrients that you need from giraffe. You're now full. And hey guys, we got cut off uh, briefly, and so we are just going to pick up from where we were talking last. So we are going to talk about the amnesiac study. So if you can continue what you were explaining, Bill. Sure. So uh, my favorite experiment that looks at the role of variety in our foods and on our appetite is a study done with um, amnesics. And what they did is they had amnesics and then regular controls. And the amnesics have such dense amnesia that five minutes later they won't even know who you are. So they have no memory for their experience long term at all. And what they did is they gave them two different foods. Let's call it a peanut butter sandwich and a tuna sandwich. And they had them taste both of them and rate how much they like them. And then they had, they gave them one of them to eat until they're full. So let's just, now you eat tuna sandwiches till you're full of lunch. So then they wait five minutes and they come back into the room and they have them taste them both again and rate how much they like them and how much they want to eat them. Now, if you're a normal control person, you know you just had lunch, so you're not really wanting to eat anything. But of course, you rate how much you like the taste and flavor and how much your desire to eat is it on the second go. If you're amnesic, you don't even know you've had lunch. And so you, what we find is that we think that what makes us feel full is how our stomach feels, but it's actually a lot about our knowledge of what we've eaten. And so what we find is that amnesics will often eat a second lunch. Even though they've just eaten the first one five minutes ago, they don't know it and they'll eat a second one again. What's interesting about this experiment, though, is that they said, sure, I'd be happy to have a uh, peanut butter sandwich for lunch, 
but the tuna, which they don't even recall eating, they're no longer interested in. And they don't think it tastes as good as they did before, and they have a way less desire to eat it. And so what this shows us is that we've evolved in order to eat only maybe one or two foods until our body doesn't need that food anymore. And that sends us a strong signal that we're full. So in my own case, my favorite food in the world is king crab from Alaska where I grew up. And if we happen to be able to, during the season, and we get our hands on some fresh king crab, I think I could eat a ton of it. But after a little while, I'm totally stuffed of king crab, even though if you say, well, it's time for dessert, I say, oh, I can do that. And it's not that we have some separate dessert stomach. It's that our body says, no, there's no more nutrients I can get out of that. I'm just not, not hungry. The consequence is that if we eat a meal with a lot of variety, we're short-circuiting a signal that our ancestors rely on to tell, them, to tell them when they were full. Now we've got so much variety in our meal that we will way overeat compared to what our ancestors would have done who never had that kind of variety. And so they didn't evolve a way of dealing with it, a way of feeling full when there was so, many, so much variety available. That's really interesting. So a lot of people that start the carnivore diet, when they shift over from just eating meat, they don't feel that satiety mechanism sometimes. So sometimes with the extra fat, they get full really quickly. I think there's a lot of like gut issues where people feel nauseated. And so that stops them from feeling, um, stops them from eating more meat. But then there are other people where they have no digestive issues. And so they're waiting for that like over fullness uh, factor. And so they keep eating the meat, um, and so initially they eat many, many pounds in a day. So some people eat five to six pounds, which is a lot, right? But yeah. over time, um, as they stay carnivore for months and two years, I think everyone uh, reels it back and they eat about one to two pounds a day. And then it kind of goes and there's nothing else that they're eating in the day. And so it goes back to what you're t saying. It makes a lot of sense, right? So maybe the people that initially try carnivore, since they're so used to like a standard American diet, they're waiting for those other um, like brain cues to say that they're full or you know some something and then they have to rewire that and then as they then eat just the meat then that old ancestral kind of pathway maybe kicks in and they're like I'm full after just eating one to two pounds. Yeah, that's very possible. We don't know of course because we need to do careful controlled experiments yes. but it's also the case that your microbiome shifts a lot with what you eat. Oh, yeah. And especially not little changes in food, but big changes like that. And your microbiome is part of what's telling you that you're hungry or you're full. And so it, there, there's different uh, little beasties inside us that are involved in digesting meat versus yeasty products versus other things. And until that balance shifts, it could well be that we're a little bit out of whack if we make a big shift in our diet. Again, I'm not very expert in that, but a colleague of mine, um, Phil Hugenholtz, who runs the Microbiome Institute here at the University of Queensland has done a lot of work looking at microbiomes and how um, how much impact they play in obesity and being thin and energy and feeling hungry and all sorts of interesting things like that. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, it, as we're talking about the gut microbiome, I know you're saying that you it's not your expertise, but you know, there's a lot of modern conversations about you need to eat the rainbow, you need diversity so that your gut microbiome is healthy. You need a lot of plants because the fiber and the plants allows your, you know, microbiome to survive. But based on everything you're saying, when our ancestors did not eat plants, um, you know, and obviously they had a microbiome back then too. So like, what is your take on that then? I mean, it kind of goes against everything, right? Well, the, um, we know that an agricultural diet is not good for your, a modern diet is not good for your teeth. Um, it's probably not great for your gut. 
the, our ancestors never flossed and they never brushed their teeth, but they had perfect teeth. And as long as they were hunter-gatherers, once they became agriculturalists, their teeth became terrible really fast. And yeah. because the sugars, it's bad luck us, the sugars in agricultural diets are good for the negative um, bacteria in our mouth, the, the ones we don't like, the ones that damage us, and they're not good for the positive ones in our mouth. And so there's all sorts of shifts that we've had to make. Now, if you, don't, if you never brush your teeth, you've got a real problem on your hands, whereas it was a non-issue for them. And so right. there's lots of changes that we've had to make. Now, some of those changes are easy to make, some less so. The, um, it is the case that the, our microbiome appears to have shifted a great deal. But with that said, there's also big individual differences. And so part of it is probably your microbiome. Part of it is probably your own DNA and your own biochemistry. But we know the diets that work really well for one person don't necessarily work well for another. And so the one thing that I always try to remind people is that you're the best judge of knowing what works for you. And so someone might come to you and say, oh, I've just got this great plan, all eat are donuts, and it works like a charm. Well, that doesn't sound very plausible, but it's conceivable. It literally does work for them and because of the nature of their microbiome and the nature of their genetics and the way they process food. I know Herschel Walker is a famous example. He's the, the great running back and who then went on to like MMA fighting or something like that. He literally would only eat every other day. Well, no other athlete who's training really hard can, would go and only eat every other day. It's just not going to work for most people. But for him, he was incredibly fit, you know, into his 50s with a, a dietary strategy that wouldn't work for most people. And so what I would say is that, yeah, when we shifted away from an, an hunter-gatherer diet, we dramatically altered our microbiome, assuredly. We don't know that with certainty because we don't have many hunter-gatherers we can get our hands on. But it's almost inevitable given the other changes that we can see. And then the question is, can you fix that? And I, you might have heard about how people use these um, fecal implants yeah. to, to change their microbiome. And it, it, it seems to work. Yes. Again, my colleague who runs the Microbiome Institute tells me that there are some people whose their microbiomes are very hard to change. They can do that. It has no effect. There's other people whose microbiomes are so powerful that no matter who you put it in, it will change them. And so we're, again, it's, it's taking time, but we're eventually going to learn, here's people for whom fecal implants are harder, here's people for whom it's easier, here's processes to make it work better. But in an ideal world, you want to match your dietary intake with your own personal biochemistry and your own microbiome. And when you get it right, you know, you've got a much better chance of, of being successful in whatever your nutritional strategies are. I do think that maybe taking probiotics and, you know, adding more gut health to your gut microbiome can shift it a little bit. I know that there are studies where immigrants migrate over to the states and their pop, their microbiome changes significantly. So that just tells me maybe you may not be able to plant new species necessarily in your gut microbiome, but I know that you can alter the ones that are in your population, which I know there's tons. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's all very interesting. It's, uh, it is. It's and it's, we're on the front end of that. It's, it's, yes. we, we know so little about what's actually in there, but we know that there's more beasties inside us than there is us. You know, there's more bacteria yeah. in our body than, than cells in our body. And so it's clearly an important balance that we maintain with these creatures inside us. And it's hard to move that balance around, but as you know, it can be done. And assuredly in the next 10 to 20 years, we're gonna learn a ton about how that works. So a lot of these GMO foods are killing our gut microbiomes. And so as 
you know, as we're consuming a lot of these herbicides and it's probably making us unhealthier, you know, what do you think about the evolution of these plants? And, you know, like as we are, um, you know, evolving as humans and, you know, the survival of the fittest type of thought, well, what about plants then? I mean, are these plants necessarily healthy for us to eat when it's probably the plants that have survived thus far are probably have the most defense mechanisms, right? Yeah, so it's a super complicated issue. On the, on the one hand, plants are like everything else. They, their goal is to interact with insects and, and interact with um, birds and other animals. So, you know, plants, it used to be that plants just let go of their, um, they were all angiosperms, I get it always backwards all the time, angiosperms and gymnosperms. Yeah, the, the, the plants were like ferns and they, they would just release their seed into the world and hope that they met each other. And then plants created this process, I, I guess angiosperms, created this complex relationship with insects and other animals where they have insects help them fertilize and then they want animals to eat their fruits in order to distribute the seed somewhere else. Because of course you don't want your seed dropping right where you live because then you're competing with your own daughters and sons. And so... Plants can't move around, so they relied on animals to do that. And that was a super important process whereby plants, um, starting on, uh, I think, a little over 100 million years ago, started to um, integrate with animals and purposely provide them with food in order for the animals to spread their seed. And so fruits and berries are designed to be healthy for us, and they're designed to be something that we can eat because that's how the plant gets its seed far away, and it's only gonna, we're only going to eat the thing if it's good for us over the long term. But plants themselves don't want to be eaten. Grass doesn't want to be eaten. Leaves don't want to be eaten. And so plants engage in a, in a very complex process where they try to protect themselves. And they do so through a variety of mechanisms, one of which is hormonal. So soy, for example has a lot of estrogens in it. Any animal that eats a ton of soy is going to end up um, consuming a lot of estrogens, which is a little bit like a birth control pill if you're a female, and it's going to lower your testosterone if you're male. And so animals have evolved that they can't eat just certain um, plants all the time or, or they won't survive, or they have to evolve their own defense mechanisms against it. And so tannins in leaves, you know, the newest buds are, have the least fewest tannins in them. It's a poison that a plant puts into its leaf to try to prevent its leaves from being eaten. So yeah. there's this competition going on all the time. Now, GMO plants, the, the biggest risk is really the trying to integrate them with herbicides and pesticides because, of course, that's some, they're endocrine disrupting. We don't even know the consequences of them yet. Lots of people believe they're obesogenic. And so that literally these pesticides are causing a part of the obesity increases it, it's probably true. It probably integrates with our own DNA, so it has bigger effect on some people than others. But the end consequence is that um, the GMO adjustment of the plant itself isn't the problem so much as its integration with these glyphosates and things like you mentioned, which are actually very bad for us. Now, you can avoid a lot of that by not eating a lot of plants, but you can't avoid it if you're eating animals that eat plants because, of course, the process is the same. Um, the most famous example of this is that the when they were first trying to do research on how they could, uh, on the effect of pesticides on farmers, they thought, well, let's look into the milk of farmers' wives because we can see how much pesticides the women have ingested and they're passing on to their babies in their milk and we can literally analyze their milk. And then they thought, well, where could we find the most pristine human milk on the planet that we could use as a comparison point? And they thought, I know, we'll go way up into the Arctic where people 
they, they, they're not farmers at all. They're living off wild animals, you know, the Inuit, and we'll look at their breast milk. And then we'll compare the level of pesticides from the farmer's wives who are putting glyphosate and stuff on their crops every day and these, Inuit, and these Inuit women who live totally off fish and seal and stuff like that. Well, the Inuit women had way more pesticides in their milk than the farmer's wives did. It was a factor of 10. And you're thinking, how on earth could this possibly be? Well, it turns out that there's this global distillation process where these things get vaporized by the sun, and then they float around the atmosphere. When it cools off, they sink. And then when it heats up, they rise again. And so they happen to work their way toward the poles because there, when it cools off, they don't, it doesn't heat up and they don't rise again. And then they bioaccumulate in the animals that the Inuit eat. And so in the seals and the fish and all that stuff. And so we're not, even a meat diet, even organic meat diet, the stuff is out there in the world and it can't yeah. be avoided. So all we can do is do the best we can, which means, well, we know hormones in our cattle are not good for us. We should try to be avoiding that. You know, we, we can do, but, but we can never be immune to it. As long as this stuff is still in our environment, all of us are ingesting it, yes. sometimes in very unjust ways, like these poor Inuit women who never benefit from farming but pay all the costs for it. Yes. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. And I, it's also in our waters. I mean, it's everywhere. It's, I mean, it's spray. So, I mean, it'll be in our air and then it'll get into our waters. And um, it's, it's really everywhere. Some of, it, some of it bioaccumulates in plants, some doesn't. So, for example, perchlorates um, get in organic lettuce because they're, they dissolve in the water. And then they, when the lettuce picks it up in the water that's grown in California, where there's lots of perchlorates in the water, the lettuce mm -hmm. picks up the... Um, the, the water, and then the water evaporates out, leaving the perchlorates behind. Now, it won't happen in every head of lettuce, but if you sure. have the bad luck that even your organically grown lettuce with no pesticides by that farmer, somewhere down there the water had that in the stream, and then it picks up in the food. And so the good news is that all these pesticides and stuff actually served a really important role in freeing us from all these horrible diseases that we don't have to suffer anymore, that mosquito transmitted malaria and all these kinds of things. The bad news is that we so overdone it that we're now paying the price even if we don't personally try to consume it. And right. again, it's a kind of thing that will just help over time. So I don't know if you remember these incidences, but back in the early 70s, Lake Erie once caught on fire. I mean, it was, it was literally the water. I think it was a river coming into the lake, but it, uh, the water caught on fire. It was so polluted. Wow. And now you can eat the fish again out of it 50 years later. And so it, Mother Nature is good about cleaning itself, but you know, there's only so much it can do. And, and the good news is people are much more aware of these things now than they used to be. So uh, you know, based off of everything we've talked about in terms of diet, so what do you eat, typically eat in a day? Yeah, so look, my diet works well for me, but it, it, it may not suit everybody. But I'm very carnivorous, and I also eat a lot of fruit. And so I'm not a big fan of vegetables. And so basically, I have the good fortune of living somewhere where there's lots of good food available almost all the time. And so my diet is, is very heavily meat-based and actually eggs and stuff like meat and eggs. And then yes. it's also very heavily fruit-based. And that fruit changes, of course, by season. Right now, it's mangoes. I'm here in Australia. It's mangoes right. and, um, and, and fruits like that. And then, of course, it'll change across the season. So um, how much meat do you eat in a day then? I'm, I'm curious. Um, I, I don't eat that much. I'm a pretty small person. But every day, that's, um, I, I, breakfast for me is usually like eggs and bacon. And mm -hmm. then I, I often don't eat any lunch at all. And then, or maybe snack on some fruit. And then dinner for me is usually steak or sometimes chicken. And here in Australia, it's, we don't have a corn lobby. And so there's no corn-fed oh, okay. beef. It's all right. grass-fed. Yeah, and there's and it's Very really, lucky. 
it's very good. Um, there's a couple of my favorites, some Tasmanian um, beef and stuff like that that's really delicious, and, and I have that on. Well, I just throw it on the barbecue um, almost every night. And so then, um, how much fruit do you think you consume in a day? That's a great question. A, a lot. I mean, uh, so right now with, with mangoes, I'll eat a couple of mangoes a day. I'll eat a couple of uh, bananas a day. I, I often make um, smoothies out of, uh, I use coconut yogurt and coconut milk. And then whatever frozen, whatever fruit is starting to get overripe, I throw in the freezer. And then I add some whey powder, whey powder and I um, make a smoothie out of that. And so I end up consuming a fair bit of fruit which I also, I'm, I'm a keen climber. I go to the bouldering gym and stuff like that. And so okay. I, I do that because I'm getting old and I don't have enough energy. Otherwise, I'm con continuously consuming this stuff just to keep the engine running. Gotcha. Do you think you ever get into ketosis in, with the amount of fruits you're eating? Or do you think it's primarily glucose? Do you, yeah, you know? I suspect it's, I'm not in ketosis. I suspect it's primarily glucose. But but I'm I'm negligent because, you know, the I'm very lucky that, the my appetite matches you know how much i should eat and so i can just yeah i can just cons eat whenever i feel like it and um and so i don't pay much attention to it i mean it's a very fortunate dna that allows that yes you're very lucky that's um that's good i think based off of what you know the, the amount of fruit you're saying i don't think you're eating more than 150 grams of sugar but i mean i don't know for sure but i mean that and so there are some people that can actually be in ketosis at 150 so I wonder and the fact that you're not eating more than sort of two meals a day maybe with a snack I don't know if I would not be surprised if maybe there are times you are in ketosis yeah it's it's very possible I do I do some work with the armed forces here and they're very keen on nutrition and those guys are big boys and they're consuming a lot but they're they track themselves very well and I've never tracked myself but I'm curious and so I may well try to follow the process and, and just out of curiosity see where I am yeah um, I'd be curious um, to if you were to check your ketones in the morning or um, after maybe like your first meal but haven't not eaten for about three, four hours. And I mean, if you have anything above maybe 0 0.1, 0 0.2, it's signs that you have ketones in your body. And so, yeah, I mean, because, possible. yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so as we're, you know, wrapping up, I, I wanted to talk about like everything that we've been talking about. So, you know, a part of me is like, okay, if we were sort of evolved to be these master manipulators in a sense, right, to right. our best position in the world, and we are great at storytelling, we may exaggerate for people to, you know, really like believe and empathize with us, but then also to lie to make sure that we stay in a great position in our um, in our societies and maybe even be like the louder person to then have more people to listen to me, right? So in a sense, it sounds like, wow, everything's so manipulative, right? But yeah. I, I know that's such a sad way to look at society in a sense. So I know you believe that there are certain keys to how to be happy in our world. If you can kind of talk about that from, you know, like everything that we've talked about. So absolutely, I agree with everything you said, but it, it does, when you look at that, it makes us look kind of manip manipulative and like we're fundamentally not good people. But in actuality, <laughs> I think evolution's brought us to a really good place. And I always think about comparing where, where it could have taken us. You know, the, the natural world is a vicious place. And, and whatever works is what 
is successful. It doesn't matter. There's, it's amoral. You know, if, if what makes you a success is clubbing baby seals to death, then, then that's what your species will evolve to do. And it's just pure luck that we evolved in the direction that we did, which is one of cooperation and kindness, rather than, say, tortoise seagull, which literally they just fight with each other all day over scraps. And that just would be such a horrible life, right? So at a pure good fortune, we evolved that what makes us success what makes us a success as a species is cooperating with each other, being kind to each other, and doing those wonderful things that make us bond tightly as a group. Now, there's negative sides to that. Our groups then often try to exterminate other groups. So we evolve kindness toward each other, not just because evolution likes us to be kind, but because you know it's effective. It makes us better killers, so to speak. So the good and the bad are tightly intertwined, but the good is something that we can easily emphasize. And in my mind, the if you think about the things that make you happiest in the world that, that really have the biggest impact on your life, it's when you have opportunities to cooperate with others and work effectively with them, be it on the sporting field, as a team, or in the workplace when you're accomplishing some project or anything. It doesn't matter. We fundamentally evolved to enjoy cooperation with people who are important to us. The, um, we also evolved that relationships are critically important. So time with our friends, time with our romantic partners, these are what made our ancestors a success and they're what make us a success today. What make us happy today is a consequence. You know, evolution says, um, it, it tries to take things that are valuable to us and, and make us enjoy those things and it takes things that are dangerous to us and make us not enjoy them, make us dislike them. And so the downside is that it's really hard for us to become permanently happier. You know, if you could achieve something and then be permanently happier as a consequence, you'd never be motivated to achieve anything again. And so evolution makes sure that we, when we achieve something, we get happier, but then we go right back to baseline. Nonetheless, those things that give us those happy moments still can add up and, and accumulate over time. So I would say, you know, close relationships are the most important thing. Time with friends and family. And because our ancestors were constantly seeking out food and were always worried about not having enough to eat, doing that over food is something that we've evolved to really enjoy. So getting together with friends and family just over a meal. Now, we have a tendency to think there's always something more interesting on the horizon. And I think that's why social media is so enticing to us. You know, when, 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 I, when you and I are out to dinner for the hundredth time, because you and I are old friends forever, and mm -hmm. we're having a conversation, I, you're not going to surprise me really with anything you say. And so when my phone goes off, I'm tempted to pick it up and check it, because maybe somebody out there is telling me something really wild and new and interesting. But the data actually showed that that's super disruptive. And when they do experiments on people, and they have them go out to dinner, and they tell them, oh, you have to put your phones away for this experimental reason, or oh, you have to have your phones on the table, People enjoy the dinner so much more when the phone is just not even there to check than when the phone is there and it's available to them. Because what I don't realize is I'm tempted to ignore you for a moment and check my phone because something new might have happened. But in reality, the connection that I have with you is far more meaningful to me and is far more likely to make me happy than the little tidbit that randomly comes up on my phone about what, you know, might be happening elsewhere in my life. And, of course, I can check that later anyway. And so the, it, it seems... Um, it seems silly, but, but the kind of old-fashioned things that we evolved to do are the things that fundamentally really make us the happiest. And there's a fair long list of those things, which I'd be happy to go over. But the basic bottom line is, you know, time with friends and family, especially over things like food, especially uh, close sexual relationships, over time, they're the only thing that it can actually slowly adjust us upward rather than this constant process of coming back to where we were before. 
Sure. Can you actually talk about a little bit about that? So I um, I know that you talk about um, that marriage, how that's the one, you know, how we are not, we cannot be consistently happy, but marriage shows that if it's, you know, if you can kind of talk through that study and, sure. you know, the power of um, a happy marriage. Sure. So like my favorite, yeah, my favorite data on that comes out of Germany where they've been tracking thousands of people for many years and you keep checking the same people over time because the problem is that cross-sectional studies can be very misleading. And when you track these people over time, you find out that there's basically lots of differences between people who get married and stay married and people who get divorced, and there's lots of differences within those relationships. So one of the interesting facts is when you, when you, when you have this really longitudinal data is you can watch people before they even met their life partner. And one of the things that we can see when, when we then can wait many years and see what happens to the marriage is that as you're, when you meet the person that you're going to marry who you're going to divorce versus the person you're going to marry who you're going to stay with, and we can separate those two, the people who meet the person they're going to marry and stay with, their happiest year is the year they get married. The people who meet the people who are, they're going to marry and then divorce, their happiest year is the year before they get married. It's already going down by the year they get married. That's lesson one, right? If you're not quite as happy as you were a year ago and you're about to get married, maybe you should not be marrying this person. Wow. Lesson two that's super interesting is that you now can take, just look at those couples who stay together. And on average, their happiest year is the year they marry, and then it slowly, slowly sinks down to about where they were before. But you can now divide those people into different categories. Lots of people stay together for, not, for reasons that aren't really about their partner, but just about convenience or the kids or whatever. And so you can say those are kind of the bottom third of the marriages that stay together. And when you look at those, they literally sink down within six to 10 years to ha way below what their happiness was before. So like wow. they're literally less happy staying in their marriage than they were before they even met their partner. But now you say, all right, well, what about the top third? You know, because we know the middle third sinks back to about where they were. Well, the top third, actually, every single year they get a tiny bit happier for at least 10 years. And so what that tells us is that if you have the good luck or the good decision-making ability to find just the right person for yourself, where the two of you move in the same directions and grow in the same ways, every year is actually better than the year before. Now, Obviously, the marriage changes, and people tend to be the most passionate about somebody when they first meet. That's how we've evolved to be. But you know, passion can be replaced with lots of really happy feelings. And so even if you don't quite feel as passionate as you did on your first or third date or something like that, you can still be happier in life because of the way your relationship intermeshes and the way you two support each other. And so in my mind, that's always the goal, searching, hoping that you can find a partner where literally things can just get better over time. Sure. So in the study, did they find any tendencies of, you know, maybe certain qualities of those people that would be significantly happier um, over the 10 years? Were there certain attributes of those people? No, we don't know that yet. I mean, the thing is that the what's super interesting about relationships that we don't understand at all right now is that we can take a whole bunch of people and we can say, all right, I know how it, we'll choose two out of them and we'll say, I know on average how attractive Bob is and how much people like Bob and I know on average how attractive Sally is and how much people like Sally and I can use that information to predict the probability that Bob and Sally will get along but what I can't understand and what nobody knows is what makes a spark between Bob and Sally versus Bob and Sue. Sure. Nobody, there's not a single piece of good evidence on that. Every one of those eHarmony and, and you know the, um, all the web dating webs, Tinder, right. they would all love to know 
what creates Spark? But there's not one piece of good data out there that tells us above and beyond how desirable these two individuals are, whether they'll form a spark with each other, romantic attachment, or whether they'll just be pals. And until we know that, that unique combination when two people get together, uh, we're, we're not going to be able to say what makes a marriage work and what makes it not. We're good about saying, here's things to do in general. We're good about saying, oh, here's the things that are going wrong. Well, here's things you could do to fix it. What we're not good about is saying, well, will you two be somehow better than the sum of your parts? We, we just don't know. Gotcha. I, I thought in that study, it also showed that if you tend to sort of run happier before the marriage, you and then you find a partner that's also tends to run, you know, more positive, then you have a higher likelihood yeah. chance. Of, was no, that right. It's sort of a sad truth is that happier people, if they're happier before they met their partner, they're more likely to stay married than if they're less happy. So we all have these genetic sort of baseline happiness levels. But happy people are just easier to be around. You know, they're they're, they're more fun, they're more positive, and, and so two people who, who tend to be happy are more likely to stay together on average than people who tend to be less happy, which is sort of really unfortunate because then it just, it's sort of like the haves go in one direction and the have-nots go in another direction. It's not your fault if you genetically struggle to be happy, but then things are going to happen in your life that then make it even harder still by virtue of even just staying married becomes more difficult for people who tend to be less happy. And in a way, worse of all, happiness is critical for your health. Your immune system functions most effectively when you're happy. And so it's super important to try to at least be somewhat happy in your life and not to sacrifice your happiness because it's also super hard on your health. It's hard on your digestion. It's hard on everything to be unhappy. And with that said, it's like offering not much in the way of advice because there are big genetic baseline differences in happiness. It accounts for about half the story. Now, but the other half is environment, which means we can potentially find a way to at least make a difference on the other half of that side. Right. Have you found tools, I guess, that will help motivate? And I mean, I know we've talked about, you know, people have to be aware and they have to make that sort of like self-talk and self-realization, you know, to change habits. And But I mean, are there ways that you found that, you know, can help people that may be more, you know, maybe more pessimistic that can try to help their themselves be happier or, you know, focus more on the good. Yeah, I mean, there is advice that I could offer. And so the um, one of the things I would say is, look, we're all dealing with our own individual baselines, right? So you can't make a big difference, but you can make a difference. And one thing that people, some people tend to do is they worry a lot about the path not chosen. There, there tends to be two different types of ways that people solve, make decisions. They either engage in what we call satisfying or maximizing. And satisfying just means that you choose the first option that comes along that's above your minimal threshold. So you're looking for shoes, the first pair you put on that are comfy, you buy them. Maximizing means you choose the best option among all that are available. So you sit down, you try on all the shoes, you don't just choose the first comfy pair you bought, you put on, but after you've tried them all on, then you pick the one that fits you the best. Now, unsurprisingly, maximizers tend to make better decisions in life than satisfizers do because they're putting more effort into finding the best possible option. Right. But more interestingly, maximizers tend to be less satisfied with their decisions than mm -hmm. satisfizers are, largely because they know about all the other options that were out there and about all the trade-offs that they had to make in order to pick the particular one that they chose. 
the end result is that satisfiers end up happier with their decisions because they're not so worried about the path not chosen. They don't even know about the path not chosen. I tried on three shoes, the third pair was comfortable, I bought it. I don't even know that there's a fourth pair that might be more comfortable but it doesn't quite look right with my jeans or whatever and makes me not buy them. Whereas maximizers are always aware about all the other opportunities and it's that awareness about other opportunities that's so costly for their happiness. So. Yeah. There's lots of things that we can do. It's hard if you're fundamentally a maximizer to shift to a satisfying. It's hard to put thoughts of the other options out of our mind. But the data show quite clearly the more successful we are at that, the happier that we're going to be in the long run. That's interesting. So you think it's um, being those two different personalities is more of a genetic trait than, um, than something you it's can kind of like learn? A, yeah, so it's, it's always a bit of both. So if you look at... Uh, across all the research on behavioral genetics where we look at identical and fraternal twins, what we find on average is that any particular attitude or preference or personality style on average is about half genetic and about half environmental. Mm -hmm. And so you can move yourself around on this if you're keen to do so because it's not entirely, your genes nudge you but they don't determine anything. You can make those decisions for yourself. So you can say, no, I'm just buying the first pair of shoes I put on that are, that are comfortable, I'm not going to worry about the rest. You can force yourself to do this. And of course, most people are a blend. They, do, they mostly do one and do a little bit of the other. So you could just push yourself in the direction that you find suits you better. I know that you have this top 10 list of sort of, you know, areas that you can sort of kind of work on or focus on that can make you happier. Um, if you can kind of talk through some of them or talk through the list. Sure. sure. So there's there's lots of things that evolution has given us that make us a success in life. But remember, evolution is primarily focused on our success, not on our happiness. And so sometimes those things come with cost to happiness. Um, one of the most notable examples is that we're really good at projecting our mind forward in the future and making plans and simulating what the future will look like and then creating elaborate ways of making sure that the future comes out the way we want and not the way we don't want. That's an enormously important ability. Only human beings can do it, create these sort of nested plans that can work 12 steps into the future. We're the only ones who can do that. But there's a cost to that. And that cost is we tend to live in the future a lot. And when you're living in the future, you're not as happy in the present. I mean, that's what meditating teaches us to do. Try to enjoy the moment you're in. It's super easy to, to get distracted and wonderful things happen in the moment you're in and you hardly even benefit from them because your mind is so caught up in where you are going forward. So one piece of advice I offer is, we'll try to stay present knowing that that's really hard because we're trying to shut down a mechanism that evolution gave us that made us such a big success. So we can't stay present, but we, what we can do is try to notice when there's a key moment in the present and then push our future thoughts aside. We know they're going to come tumbling back in, but at least when something really great is taking place, like a wonderful moment with your kids or with your partner or a dinner, you can push all the other thoughts away, at least for a little while, and focus on what you have in front of you. And that's very important for your happiness. Um, I would also say that because we evolved in order to be part of this collective, to be part of a group, it's very important to stay embedded in your community. You know, in the world we live in, it's super easy to move all over the place. Right. And, and that makes us, well, look here, I live in Australia when I grew up in Alaska. It's very easy to leave family and friends behind. But 
at the same time, it's super important for our happiness. And the data show not just our happiness, but also our health. So the plus of the modern world we live in is that you and I are chatting on Skype. We can see each other, even though we're many thousands of miles apart. And so you, I'd say that if you do have opportunities elsewhere that cause you to get up and move, it's important that you try to retain your connections with your community as much as possible, at least certainly until you've built new connections and feel that you're embedded in a new community in your new environment. Um, another piece of advice I would offer is that over time, our strengths and proclivities change. You know, when you're young, you're physically fit and strong, um, and you're, you may be learning a lot, but you don't know nearly as much as you will later. And so your talent profile differs from when you're quite a bit older, where physically you might be not as strong anymore, but you gain some wisdom and you have greater knowledge and things like that. And so I would say that if you start to notice that the things that used to make you happy don't make you happy anymore, it's not a sign that you're necessarily becoming depressed or having psychological difficulties. It's a sign that your life has changed. And what that means is maybe you should be trying to find new things that make you happy, that suit your new existence, your new talents, your new proclivities, things like that. So there's a number of little things that you can do along the way. Um, learning new things is another good example. We evolved to more than any other species on the planet, to learn how to survive in our environment. And so we fundamentally enjoy learning. We fundamentally enjoy storytelling. All these kinds of things latch on to our evolved tendencies. And so they're the things that inherently make us happy. Now, we can be fooled. In the modern world, there's lots of things out there that mimic those ancestral things that aren't really the same. Um, my colleague Robert Trivers calls them phenotypic indulgences, things that make your body happy but don't really meet the genetic needs that we're designed to, to make our body happen that way. Alcohol is a good example. Uh, TV is sort of a good example. It's easy to not spend time with your friends and just watch television because it feels like you're kind of friends with those people on your favorite show. But it's not a good replacement. You're much better off doing those kinds of activities with other people or at the very least talking about them with other people later because it then re-engages the sort of storytelling process rather than spending your life after work just plopped down in front of your television screen. What do you think of um, the inner, so what if you replaced a lot of the in-person relationships, but then you have these deep-seated relationships online, so you don't, you may see them, but it's primarily messaging, but you know, there's a lot of interaction, you can have communication and emotional connection with words, but you know, the, the, the vocal and the, I guess the nonverbal cues are kind of missing, so what do you think of that? Yeah. That's a great question. Unfortunately, we don't know the answer because right now that's all so new that maybe in some ways that's better. And we know that in some ways it is, that's, particularly if you're typing. Like imagine that you and I have been friends for a long time and I decided I want to come out of the closet and tell you I'm gay. And so I tell you in person and you're not bothered by that, but you're surprised. And so there's this long pause and you go, oh, uh, oh, I'm cool with that. And now forever I think you're not cool with it because you took yes. so long to tell me. Whereas if I typed it to you and I said, oh, hey, Judy, I should let you know that I'm gay. You, for all I know, you're not on your screen at that time. And then two minutes later you type back, hey, I'm cool with that. And it, I think everything's fine because in fact it is. And so interestingly, there are some domains where literally we do better if we're in electronic medium than we do face-to-face -face because face-to-face -face can introduce some misinterpretations. But of course, on average, it goes the other way. It's far more likely that I tell you a joke on the internet and you think I'm serious because the, I do the wrong emoji or I know whatever. And so miscommunication is easy. And then, of course, what we're missing and we don't even understand fully yet is the interpersonal synchrony that develops. And so when you and I are actually face-to-face, -face, our pupil sizes match, 
All sorts of things happen to us physiologically as we come in tune with each other. And for all we know, that doesn't work on the internet. You know, you, you can just look at how often you interrupt somebody on the phone or on Skype versus in person to know that the cues aren't quite right. And so you're, in, you're, you're interjecting not quite at the right point because you, there's a time lag and all sorts of other little things that happen. We don't know enough about how any of this process works to give any advice yet. But the one thing I would say is that it does make people happy to supplement their in-person connections with connections over the internet. And it does make them happy if your loved ones are far away to try to connect with them on the internet when previously they would just be able, you'd write them a letter and wait a week for it. Sure. I think one additional point I would make with the in-person relationships is the incredible power of touch. I think yeah, there's a lot agreed. of healing powers with touch too. Uh, so. Absolutely. We evolved to do that. It's super important. Okay, well, you know, this has been very um, amazing. I love all the work that you're doing. It is so fascinating. I mean, I studied social psychology in school, and I, I always loved it. Um, and there's so many studies in my mind that I remember about, you know, just approximation and exposure and all that and how it can change, like liking somebody, for example. And so it's yeah. it's always been so fascinating to me. And so thank you so much for coming on. Um, one thing I want to ask is if you can share a little bit about your book, um, the social leap and, you know, just where people can find you. Sure. Sure. So, um, the, the social leap is the title of the book and it just came out last year. Uh, it, it can be downloaded anywhere. Of course it's audible or E or regular hard copy. Um, the, it's starting to come out in other languages, but until later this month, it's still only in English. So it, it, at this point, at least it has to be purchased in English. The, um, and in that book, we talk a lot of the stuff that we've chatted about today gets developed more fully there. So that's really what that book is about, sort of our story over the last six million years and how that story helps us understand the way we are today with regard to, you know, things like nutrition, but also things like leadership and friendship and innovation, stuff like that. As far as finding me, the good thing about having an unusual last name like Von Hippel is I'm the only Bill Von Hippel out there. And so all you've got to do is Google me and I'm easily found. Your, your listeners should feel free to send me an email if they have questions. I'm not always super quick just because sometimes they come in at very large volumes, but I always get back to people. And so if anybody has any question, I'm more than happy to hear from them and it'd be my pleasure to uh, chat with them and offer my thoughts. Often I don't know the answers, but then of course I'll tell you or I'll tell them that I don't. Sure. Thank you so much for this. Um, one question I want to ask before we you know, go is, um, if you had any advice for the people listening, what, what would be your sort of like life tip or life hack that you, you know, from all the things that you have learned from this whole process and, you know, the social leap, what, what would be your big sort of takeaway? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess what I would say is uh, with regard to your, um, your podcast is really about health and nutrition. I guess what I would say is this, that we now know that, for example, obesity is like 70% genetic. And so remember I said that everything on average is about 50. Well, obesity tends to be on the high scale. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, that could make you feel hopeless. Like, well, what can I do? It's so out of my control. But interestingly, we also know, and you don't have to have been alive for very long to know this, that before 1980, almost no one was obese. It was yes. really rare. And now it's super common. And so what that tells you is that obesity itself is not genetic, but rather some sort of susceptibility to something in our environment is. And we don't know if that something is pesticides, if that something is modern lifestyle, if that something is particular foods. But what it does tell me is that 
all of us has a particular all of us have a particular path that we can follow that's most suitable to us and it can take you a long time to find that path but eventually if you keep working on it you can find a way where your genetic architecture fits the best possible way with the modern world and if something works for somebody else it's always worth a try but it's not a guarantee that it will work for you and it's not a sign that you're doing it wrong like you you don't need to berate yourself if if what if uh, some exercise regimen works really well for your friend and doesn't work for you it may just be that you're different because of course there's huge differences in this regard right. and so i'm a big believer in trying to keep trying to find your path and you know the you can start with the very standard things that we know tend to work on average and if those things fail for you then you start to follow more idiosyncratic paths there's absolutely nothing wrong with pursuing something for which there's not very much evidence so long as you gather the necessary evidence on yourself and so i try to keep in mind that a lot of it is seemingly outside of our control right it's the cards that we were dealt but of course you can play that same hand in lots of different ways. And so that's what I try to work toward is, you know, what are my individual strengths and weaknesses and how can I maximize the former and minimize the cost of the latter? Sure, one wrench I would throw in that though is, uh -huh. so if, what, what if your mind is just rationalizing that, oh, you know what, this is just not working for you, but it's really just kind of this, I wanna go back to old habits versus this, real, this diet or this pathway really isn't for you. Like how do you, differentiate when it's your yeah. mind telling you it's reality. You <laughs> right, that's I mean? a great question. A, a large portion of the work that I do is on self-deception. So I know that we're really good at lying to ourselves and telling ourselves what we want to believe. But right. of course, it's difficult to differentiate that which I want to believe from that which the world is actually telling me. And so it's difficult, as you say, to differentiate, well, is this me telling myself an excuse so I cannot have to go to the hard yards or is this really not working for me? And I guess what I would say is one thing that we've learned in the laboratory is that you're most willing to accept difficult truths about yourself when everything else is going well in your life. So when you're feeling comfortable in your relationships, when you're happy in the moment, when work is going well, whatever. And so I would say are, if you're trying to decide if you're lying to yourself just to protect yourself or if you're really this isn't working for you, choose a day where everything is really going well. And then sit back and try your hardest to be honest with yourself and saying, all right, am I being lazy? Am I not pursuing this with the vigor that I need to? Or is this path really not working for me? Because it is easy to be lazy. It's just so, you know, it's a, if it weren't, you know, every single person on this planet would be a paragon of fitness. And so it's, it's very easy to, to tell ourselves those lies. But it's also easy, it's not easy, it's also important that we confront ourselves and decide, well, what's working for me and what can I, you know, what's worth it to me? I, I, no, none of us are trying to turn ourselves into an Olympic athlete because it's just too much effort unless that's actually your thing. And so you wanna decide what your goals really are, what of, how achievable are they, and are you actually making progress toward them? And, and if you're not, what could you change to try to make it go more effectively? That's that's really good. I think that's a that's a good way to I guess try to sift through the noise and figure out you know if it's just your mind rationalizing or if it's really um, just not the right path for you. Well, thank yeah. you so much for your time. Um, this has been incredible. I was looking very forward to talking to you. I love social psychology, and so this has been so much fun. Um, thank you again for being on. Totally my pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Okay. Bye, Bill. Thank you. Bye -bye. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed the Q&A. There was a lot of good information. So I hope you guys took notes. If anything, you guys can always watch it again. 
one thing I hope that you guys take away from everything is that you know there are ways that you can improve your life there are ways that you can make yourself happier and there are ways to motivate yourself I know that there will be times where genetics may take a place and we may just want to be lazier or we'll just kind of be stuck but you know take a lot of the information that we talked about today to motivate yourselves to be positive one thing that is big in this conversation that we had is we really need to take the time and self-reflect we need to get to know ourselves and figure out our whys figure out what makes us function and then help us to really be open-minded to be able to then change for the better the last thing that i'd like to leave you guys with is to really focus on community you guys heard how important community is and the one factor that maybe continuously make you happy in the long run whereas there is nothing else in this world that will make you as happy as a continued healthy relationship in the long run and by the way it doesn't even have to be a marriage it could be a happy friendship a happy relationship so make sure to you know keep those connections in the community it is so vital to our health to our happiness and to why it makes it worth living in this world all right guys Make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys again and make sure to do hard. Uh, have a good week, I'll talk to you soon. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.